Shalom, and welcome to the Jewish Yogi Podcast with Emily Hertzfeld, the podcast that explores Jewish thought, belief, and practice with yoga, philosophy, values, and practice. Please feel free to reach out on Instagram at the Jewish Yogi or email at the Jewish Yogi at gmail.com. This is from part two of our interview with Stephen J. Gold. Hello. Hello, Emily. Hi, it's nice to meet you, Stephen. Nice to meet you. Thank you so much for your time. I'm very excited about this. Okay, so welcome to the Jewish Yogi with Emily Hertzfeld. Today we're speaking with Stephen J. Gold. He is the founder director of Torah Veda, formerly Yoga and Judaism Center in Atlanta, Georgia. And he has authored several books, including Om Shalom, Yoga and Judaism, a good book that I have, Ivri, The Essence of Hebrew Spirituality, a good book I have to get, but I was reading online, and Torah Portion Summaries with Insights from the Perspective of a Jewish Yogi. And that is another good book that I have. He's been teaching meditation and related classes on Indian and Jewish mysticism for many years. So welcome and thank you for your time and your information you're going to share. One other big connection. Again, this is from traditional Jewish sources. And a lot of people who have studied the Torah are surprised to hear this or they know about it, but no one has focused on it. But because of my yogic thing, it made me focus on this. I said, this is really unusual. So Abraham, in his old age, remarried. Some say he remarried. Some say it was he just took on a concubine. But it, sometimes they refer to her as the concubine. And sometimes they refer to her as his wife. Her name was Keturah. Some sources say Keturah was Hagar. Yes, Some, I've heard that. I okay, have heard that. There are, and I'm talking traditional Talmudic sources. Some say Keturah was another way named for Hagar. When Hagar grew, she became sweet like the Keturah, the spices of Keturah. So another say, no, 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 it was a different person. But in any case, Abraham had a concubine or wife late in his life, way after Sarah had passed who he hooked up with, and they had several children. And Isaac and Ishmael were still around. And in the closing portion in the Torah, closing out Abraham's life, was Isaac and Ishmael stayed where they were living, but he sent his other children away, all of them named, and some of the grandchildren are named, with names. He sent them off to the east with his gifts. Do you know this story? I've heard this. Well, this fellow, Audie Goslin, wrote a whole book about it. What's uh, the name of the book? Avraham and Brahman and the search for the search for something. But he's connecting this whole story. Uh, Audie Goslin is his name. He's Canadian. He's a fairly observant Orthodox, but he's also really into yoga. He does something that he calls Kabbalah yoga. Okay. And I saw him speak at the local Haban in Atlanta, and I got his book immediately. His book is referred to in one of my books, and probably in Ivory, and also on my website. So he took that same strain that I saw. So the contention is that these sons and grandchildren who Abraham sent to the east, where did he send them to? He sent them back to their homeland in Havilah. Abraham didn't have his enlightenment. Full circle. In, in you brought us full circle. Abraham had his enlightenment in the East, right? 
The Torah makes all this reference to the East and not saying exactly where this East was, okay? But Abraham had his basic revelation East, and then he traveled West after his revelation, right? So he sent these children and grandchildren back to the east of his original homeland, which I contend and others contend was India. And look at the phonetic connection between Brahman and Abraham, Avraham, Brahman, and the V and the... So there's a connection between Ram, Avram, Avraham, Soham, Brahman... So the Jewish take, of course, because Jewish, the traditional Orthodox Judaism is superior to anything else that ever will, ever has existed and ever will exist. So the traditional Jewish take is those sons went to India and became the Vedic Rishis. The gifts were mind blown. <laughs> the gifts were the gifts of meditation and higher mystical esoteric knowledge that Abraham gave them to take back to the East, they became the Rishis who developed the Vedas. That's the Jewish take. But that is all inferior to Jewish teachings because Jewish teachings are always superior to any other teachings. If you go to any traditional Jewish source, the Jewish teachings are always superior. So the traditional Jewish teachings are, those were lesser teachings of a lesser nature, for lesser peoples, and the main teachings stayed with Isaac. Of course, not Ishmael. Main teachings stayed with Isaac. Of course, the Vedic people would see it the other way around, that Abraham learned everything he knew from the Rishis in India and brought it west and translated into the people of his region and reinterpreted as suitable to the people and practices of his region. Whatever. I don't care who came first. You know, but there's always this who came first, who's the best kind of mentality that goes on, unfortunately, everywhere. It's true, but I'm glad it's out there. I'm just glad it's, it's out there to access it. It's a fascinating story. I have um, to look up that book. That's a good one. I can't get the exact name, but Audi, A-U-D-I, Goslin, G-O-Z-L-A-N, I think. Is okay, name. I'll look it up and yeah. I'll get my hands on it. Talk about a connection. The basic idea is that both the Torah and the Veda were first oral, all oral. And the idea is Moses went up to the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. He came down with more than the Ten Commandments. He came down with the whole law, the written law and the oral law. And why do we chant it? Chanting is a pneumatic device. But for a while, it was conveyed from him to the other elders and from the elders to on verbally, which we still do to this day. And it, it really pains me as much as I don't like ritual anyway, that the traditional Torah reading in shul is not the highlight. And it's just this little thing going on in the bima and it's time for everyone to go take a break. If you're not involved with it, where to me, it should be the pinnacle of the service. It's the chant. It's the chant. And the same tradition exists in the Vedic culture, only it wasn't one. It were, were seven rishis, and somehow through these seven rishis and deep meditation in the Himalayas, these phonetic utterances came forth that became eventually and were transferred orally for generations mm -hmm. until eventually they were written down as Sanskrit and became the written Vedas, just as I believe the Torah 
it, who knows when it was really written down, but I think originally it was a, a verbal auditory revelation. It was translated that way. It was carried on that way and eventually got written and became biblical Hebrew, just like the Vedas are written in Vedic Sanskrit. And to this day, there are Jews who chant the Torah week in and week out, and there are priests in India who chant the Vedas week in and week out. They train children from three years old how to properly chant the Vedas. And it's still an ongoing, alive practice today because they believe it has so much spiritual power to it. The phonetic vibrations, which is what mantra is all about. It's so what, what can you, can you, we spoke a little bit about it earlier, but if I could trouble you again to talk a little bit more about the power of the chant, the mantra, the yes. phonetic, and I go into both that practices. In Ivory, I talk about Sanskrit and biblical Hebrew being sacred languages and what makes them a sacred language. And they're sacred languages because they were derived from this incredibly deep, deep spiritual state and came out through these beings from this very deep state as vibrations more than anything else. And what is sound but vibration? And eventually utterances and the mantras that are contained in the Vedas and the mantras that are contained in the Torah just still have anchors to that original deep divinity from which they emerged. And that's why they're so powerful. One experience that I had given my TM mantra was as soon as the initiator whispered that sound into my ear, it was like two sensations I had. It was like it sunk down into the very depths of my being. Like, so it went back to its origin, which was in some incredible depth in my being. I could like feel it squirming down. And then I felt like I was being introduced to an old friend. It was something that I had known and forgotten. And what does everyone say about the Torah? We were all taught the Torah in the womb. And then, right. We, right? So we were all taught it originally. We carry it and we just need to be re reintroduced to it. And that always makes me think of what, the way that God created the world. He could have just taken whatever and just made or, but he spoke, let there be light. He did it through sound. Yes. I don't think he did everything through speaking. I think he did a lot of things through, through speaking. But prior to an utterance, the Ruach was coursing across the depths of the deep. And when there's this movement of, I know there's a lot about the Shama being breath and wind and all that, but Ruach, the spirit, was coursing along the surface of the deep. What happens when wind moves along the surface of the deep. It makes the deep move and mixes it up. Waves. And what is the origin of sound? Waves. Waves. Okay. Ah. But I'll give you one more insight that is my, yeah. I'll give you one more insight that I have not found anywhere. I just had an aha moment a few years back, but it's another connection. This is a worldwide first on your podcast. The first word in the Torah is Bereshi, right? The first word in the oldest of the Vedas is Agni. Agni, A-G-N-I is how it's usually spelled in English, and pronounced Agni, means fire. Well, what about Bereshi? How about 
within the word Bereshit. You know, you know how much scholars play around with Jewish words, right? Hebrew, Hebrew words. The word Eish is in the word Bereshit. It's right there. So in the word Bereshit is the word fire. And in the first word of the Rig Veda is the word fire. Fire has two main characteristics, light, self-perpetuating light that does not need fuel, and sound, a roaring fire. Fire can roar, right? Okay. So the two originating mechanisms of creation, manifestation, come from light and sound, come from fire. What Moses beheld at the burning bush, this is my contention, there was nothing special about the bush. The bush wasn't burning. That was what was special. What was special was the fire. The fire was not using the bush for its source. It did not need fuel. It was self-sustaining fire. And he was communicating with that self-sustaining fire of Bereshit, of Agni. And he was giving his direction from that self-sustaining fire. If you want to break down Bereshit a different way, Bura. What's Bracha, right? Bura. So the BR is from Bracha, which even the mystics say is a very, very high level of blessing, of invocation. That's why our Baruchas start with Baruch. Bruch, Bruch. What do you have? The first letter of the Torah is Bruch. The next letter is H, fire. The blessing of fire. And I was having trouble with eat. Where does eat come from? I eventually discovered that eat is a suffix that indicates something growing smaller, diminishing something. So apparently I thought what, what I found was the Hebrew word for a big sack, whatever that word is, and then the Hebrew word for a little bag is that, that same word. word with eat at the end. So in the word bereshit is the summation of creation right in that word. By blessing the eternal expansive fire that was taking up all of infinity and eternity and not allowing room for anything else diminished itself, eat, so that other things could there was come. Space for it. And the bara, the traditional translation is Elohim was the creator. No, there's a little source out there. What was being created, the fire was creating the, why is Elohim plural? You know, everyone's pulling their, their hair out. Why is Elohim plural? That's a good why question. I never thought about that. Oh, oh, well, it's big. Believe me. Why is Elohim plural? Why not? Why, you know, why, not. why is it plural? Why is it plural? I'll tell you why. Why, why? Because the one effulgent fire that is exists throughout infinity and eternity had contracted itself to allow for other creation to appear. And in so contracting, they created the forces of nature, the masters, the, the Lord of the hosts. Who are the hosts? Who is the ma master of these legions? It's the Elohim is the legion. The Elohim are the hosts. They are the forces of nature that then created the heaven and the earth. Wow, that's so much I need to think about. That's a lot to, to absorb. Uh, I'll throw in one other thing. That's bring it on, bring it on. So I did have a chance to go to a lecture by Danny Matt. You know who Danny Matt is? I don't. Daniel Matt 
is the guy, the scholar, who recently, a few years ago, finished an exhaustive retranslation and commentary on the entire Zohar. Oh. Have you heard about that? That I think I heard of. I don't think I knew the name of the person associated was, with it. There was a very wealthy family whose name, Edelman maybe, I, I can't quite remember. It was a very wealthy family who yanked him out of Berkeley and said, whatever they're paying you, we'll pay you that and more. And we'll give you some research assistance. We would like you to do a complete comprehensive translation of the Zohar with commentary. And they worked years on it and he, they finished it. When I saw him speak, and he's a very down-to-earth guy. He's a very nice, friendly, non-professorial person for the depth of his scholarship. He pointed out in that lecture, the word et. Do you know much about the word et? I can't say that I do. I know what it so, means too. Well, okay, well, bereshi bara Elohim et hashemayim ve et haoret. Well, ha means the, right? When you, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. What do you need et for? Ha means the. To the, he created to the, it always means like to, like TL. Well, like when you travel first, to somewhere, halach et, well, le, I, I don't know. I'm not a linguist, not my strength. So, and actually when they were developing modern Hebrew, there was a big argument whether to include et in modern Hebrew or not. There were advocates who said, what do we need it for? We have ha, we don't need et get rid of it. What's it mean? It doesn't mean anything. But the advocates of keeping Ed prevail. But in any case, Ed is Alpha and Omega. Ed is Olive, olive and Tough. Tuff. So you have this Ed. And I said, no, we need Olive Tough. We need the conception of Alpha and Omega. We, we need that. So right there is the essence of Alpha Omega is involved with Ed Hashemayim, the Ed Haror. It's Alpha and Omega Hashemayim, Alpha and Omega, Haaretz. That is a lot of stuff. Wow. I, I, you know, I just want to explode your head. So It like, is. My I husband's going to have to come up and mop up the floor. No of my head's there. like all over the place. Yeah. This is so, great stuff. It's staring us right in the face. There's Aish. And later on, there's Adam, you know, Ha'adama, you know, and all of that. But then there's Ish and Isha, right? And yes. the derivative of Ish is from Aish. Yes. Ish is derived from Ish, which is fire. So not only are we beings of earth and water, but oh, no, Ish is, well, Hashemayim is fire and water. That's Hashemayim. The firmament is a combination of fire and water. And we. How does the fire come into it? The Sh in Hashemayim, that Sh, again, this is traditional Jewish Talmudic sources that should comes from h oh okay so the firmament is composed of fire and water and here we are fire beings ish and isha fire beings the divine spark that's true now it all makes sense okay that's so, why it's worth being a jewish yogi i mean <laughs> that. so i mean I'm like there's h right there in Bereshi. no one's ever seen it no one's ever picked up on that no one has. I haven't heard about that one before. So so with all this stuff that you're sharing that no one's ever heard of before, are you working on something new? Is there a new book in the works? Are there oh new my classes? A couple of years ago, I thought I had written all I needed to write with yoga and Judaism and Ivory and Torah portion study summaries and some of the others. And someone planted this little seed in my brain 
just asking me, where are you going to write anymore? And I said, no, I think I've written all I, I need to write. But that started a boulder going. And my latest two books that I did almost back to back, actually, to my own amazement, are Dimensions. Dimensions. What is it? Something, the spiritual spectrum. Navigating the spiritual spectrum. Navigating the spiritual spectrum. I think the copyright is 2018, I think. Very close. Dimensions, Navigating the Spiritual Spectrum, 2018. But there's still a lot of Torah Veda in here. It's not as focused. Some chapters are more Jewish focused than others. Some chapters are more Veda focused than others. And some are a combination. I do have a whole chapter that I'm actually very satisfied with, which I knew was going to be the most difficult chapter to do, which is on the book of Job. And it's called Karma and the Book of Job. Ooh. And I'm very happy, really satisfied with my treatment of that subject. I, I look at the book of Job itself, and I knew there were two other books that I needed to incorporate. And that was When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Mm-hmm. And JB, if you're, I don't know if you're familiar with JB. No. JB was a play written by Archibald McLeish, and JB stands for Job. So oh. I went through all three of those texts in that chapter, and yeah, yeah I mean, they're they're actually, I mean, I, I got another book called Bible Stories: Enoch, Metatron, Sandalphon, Phineas, Elijah, and Elisha. So <laughs> there is a good deal of Jewish stuff in here, actually. Most of it was based on talks that I gave at the local Vedanta Center, if you're familiar with Vedanta Society. A little bit. So that was my last platform for being able to somewhat regularly give lectures and lessons and teachings and stuff. And fortunately, they recorded everything. And I transcribed all of those recordings and turned them into chapters of a good deal of this book, but not there are some chapters that weren't from there, but a good deal of the chapters are from there. And Rabbi Rami Shapiro, do you know Rabbi Rami Shapiro? I don't. Oh, there's so many people you still need to know. I do. Anyway, I do. I'm trying. I have an endorsement from him for this book. So I'm very ha- happy with that. So you said that you were glad that they recorded all of it. Does that mean that you're not, you're, you're no longer teaching actually, or you're just writing? Well, no. I mean, when something comes around, I had sent to you some information about this new interspiritual organization that I'm on the board of. Yeah, I was looking at it. Zeitgeist? Zeitgeist, the spirit of now. I've taught one course through them. I will be teaching another course through them, which will probably be Zoom in the fall. Okay, great. So, you know, here and there, I mean, I've taught at at, at, uh, temples here and there. I've helped with meditation classes and meditation groups here and there over the years in Atlanta at a few different temples and stuff. It's sort of like when I get the call, I answer the call, but I'm not like actively seeking it out. The Kabbalah Center was a good outlet for me and the Vedanta Center was sort of like when I had something I felt was worth presenting, I could go to the resident minister in there and say, hey, you know, I'd sort of, you you got a slot for me. I'd like to make a presentation. He said, sure. So that's sort of how how that worked out. Yeah, I get an itch to teach once in a while. So I'm looking forward to the fall when I'll be able to teach that. But right now, which I'm really thrilled about, I am involved, which started as a physical group, but turned into a Zoom group, of course. Another dear friend of mine, Rabbi Mitch, who also wrote, (laughs) who introduced me to these people and who wrote a forward to Dimensions, he has this monthly group called Cup of Wisdom, 
and we choose a text and we basically meet and study the text and discuss the text. So we started out with a book that you should look into if you're into, into spiritual stuff. There's a book by Rami Shapiro called World Wisdom Bible. World Wisdom Bible. Yeah, Rami Shapiro. And we started out with that because he sort of started these groups. Then we studied Autobiography of a Yogi. which was, I love that book. You know, I, I read it like years and years ago and I had and rereading it was astounding to reread that book and discuss it with other people. It was astounding. There were so many things that the first time I read it just totally freaked me out. And now I get it. So yeah, it was great. And I wasn't going to suggest it, but somebody else in the group who had already was familiar with this book said, hey, why don't we talk about a book where we can have the author present? So <laughs> we are now have just begun studying this book. Nice. And I am the, as the author, I'm not leading it. My friend Mitch is leading the discussion and I just pipe in like I did with all the others. So we just began studying this book. Very happy that people are interested enough to devote that group to it. And you can come because it it's doesn't matter where you are. It's okay. And so it's if you're the, interested, let me know and I will have Rabbi Mitch send you an invite. I would definitely be interested. When is it? What days? It Now, if you're Shomer Shabbos, that's an issue. Guilty as charged. Okay. Because, you know, to me, you know, he's a rabbi, but he's sort of like a renegade rabbi. And my own interpretation, of, I do observe Shabbat. There are many paths to God. Yeah. I love observing Shabbat in my own way, but my own way doesn't restrict me from writing or going on the computer. But I study, I meditate, I study, I meditate, I sleep, I set it aside for no worldly activities, no normal weekly activities. I set it aside for spirituality. If I want to write something in my journal or whatever, I don't feel bad about. It is our Shabbat study group, <laughs> but it's on Zoom. So Not meant to be this time. Okay. So. I'll keep looking up the website to see what else is coming along that might work with my schedule. And it sounds like, a great, sounds like a great study group. The other thing that I'm, uh, I am conducting and facilitating is a Sunday evening group that meets monthly from 6.30 to 8. That is an interspiritual contemplative group. So that's been going on for many years. And I sort of inherited the administration of it. And I sort of rescued it from it fading away. Been going strong for many years. It's inter interfaith, but I changed it to interspiritual. We actually sit in silence for 20 minutes. And then after the silence, facilitators guide a discussion. Sometimes there's a topic in advance. Sometimes there's a topic presented. I oftentimes present a song and we just talk, but it's grounded in the 20 minutes. No one guides anything other than timing the 20 minutes. People can sit in silence however they're used to sitting in silence and meditating or doing whatever they want to do in their period of silence. But to my surprise, I have found sitting in silence on Zoom is just as powerful as when we physically sat together. Yes, I was on a Zoom the other day. It was a quick two-minute meditation. There are about 50 people on the Zoom. So powerful. Yeah, yeah. It's, it didn't yeah. matter. It was just over Zoom. Yeah. I, 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 you know, was reluctant 
to do it. And actually someone else did it for a while while I was like crazy busy doing stuff in my crazy busy life during that period. And I said, well, good luck with that. And, and they were doing it weekly because they felt like during all these crazy times and COVID coming and all that stuff, he kept it going. And I was like, yeah, I just don't know if it's going to work, you know, online. But I went to some of his sessions and to my surprise, they did. So we let that go. and We picked up again just with the monthly because uh, the weekly was sort of fading away. And we're back to doing the monthly and we get six to 10 to 12 people coming. Some That's people are pretty regular. Some people are more irregular. Some people come and sniff it and decide whether they're going to stay or not. You know, some people come and go. It doesn't matter. There's that too. Okay. I'll, I'll look it up. So to finish up, Stephen, mm-hmm. anything you'd like to finish up with that's on your mind? Anything you'd want to say to somebody who's Jewish, who's interested in yoga, practicing yoga, thinking about yoga, thinking about Judaism? Well, I, I just think that they're meant to be wedded in some form or fashion. And yes, like you said, things are very personal. Uh, in, in the world of spirituality, you go with what feels right with you, and what resonates with you. I think we have an inner knowing of what is right for us in a given time and what is the right thing to do at a given time. And you need to look for that to that. But I, I certainly am a great advocate of meditation. There are some people who can't sit still. And, you know, if they, you can't sit still, you can't meditate. So the physical exercises are the entree where it hopefully helps you still your body to the point that you can meditate because that's what that system was meant to do. And when your body gets to a point where it's not a distraction, then you deal with the much bigger distractor, which is your mind. (laughs) If you think your body is a distraction, wait till you deal with the mind. And one of the best ways to help deal with the mind is, is to sit and to meditate in some form or fashion. And if you have a strong Jewish identity, you know, if you're fine doing the traditional going to shul and and the traditional stuff, great. But if you feel some connection with Judaism, but the traditional stuff isn't working for you, there are alternatives. And don't just abandon it. It does concern me that people abandon it. They're not relating with the tradition. And there is a deeper tradition that is beginning to be unearthed that more people are relating with. And it it really, it makes me sad when I come across a Jewish person who is pretty much totally abandoned. And I want to pull them back. You know, I want to, you know, there's something good here. There's something worth salvaging. Don't just throw away the baby with the bathwater. There's something worth salvaging. Try to look into it from different angles and try something that works before you just let it go. Yeah, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. No, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You can nibble if medit- if you like meditation and you're you have some heebie-jeebies about doing Sanskrit. Pick up. I have on my website and my books all kinds of suggestions about Jewish mantras, most of which comes straight from the Torah. Try some of them out. I believe that biblical Hebrew is a sacred language, and the vibration of it is there. The meaning of the words don't matter as much as the vibrational aspect to them, the phonemes. There's, quote, meaning. I I use the example, I love music. Music is my big emotional outlet. Music is a language that does not involve the intellect, but it's a language that most of us can relate with in some very deep way. Music affects most human beings in some very deep way. Indeed. Okay. 
listening to music, playing music. Yeah, there can be a certain intellectual aspect. You can get into music theory and blah, blah, blah. But essentially, it is a language of its own beyond language. And meditating and the vibrations of those sounds, like there's some teachings in the Vedic tradition, don't do a mantra if you don't know what it means. Well, on what level? And there's all these different translations of what these mantras mean. For any given mantra, there's 10 translations of that mantra and what it means. But that's on one level. On the deeper level, it's vibrational. The meaning is vibrational. It's not intellectual at all. It can't be translated into an intellectual meaning. So yes, on the deeper level, it has to resonate with you. If it's not resonating with you, then don't do it. But it's something attracts you. Like to me, a very powerful Hebrew mantra that, that I recommend to people is that I've experimented with. I've experimented with stuff. The term, the Adonai Hineni. Inhale Adonai, exhale Hineni. Inhale Adonai, exhale Hineni. Very, very powerful. And we all know what Adonai Hineni means. And it's powerful on that level. It actually means the same thing that the universal mantra in my yoga tradition means, Soham. So is bringing in divinity and hum is offering divinity back, offering yourself back. I am that, offering it back. Adonai, come to me. I will serve you. Adonai, come to me. I am here to serve you. I know you had a blog about Hineni. To me, it's <laughs> I am of service. I am here. I am at your service. To me, that is the deep meaning of Hineni. I am here. I am at your service. Whatever you ask me, I will do. And Adonai, Hineni. Adonai, Hineni. And go with your breath. Your breath will start doing it on its own, and you just listen. The, the ultimate level of mantra is you do not do mantra. Mantra does you. Okay? <laughs> the mantra is already in you, and you're tuning into it. And when you tune into it, you are listening. My spiritual master said, you know, I don't do all the, the preliminaries that I tell all of you people to do. When I sit to meditate, I turn my entire being into an inner ear and I listen. And my mantra comes to me and I listen to it. I just listen. And it's captivating. Wow. That, that's the essence of mantra. You don't do meditation. Meditation does you. You set the stage. This is very important because people, meditation is not doing. Meditation is undoing. Meditation is being. It's sitting with being. That's the real essence of meditation, sitting with being. You don't do it. You can only set the stage for it. And the metaphor that I use, the analogy I use, is going to sleep. You or I can't say, I'm going to go to sleep now. And you do sleep. It, it doesn't <laughs> work that way. All right? If you're really, really tired, you're going to go to sleep even if you don't want to. But you set the stage for sleep and you lay down in your bed and you let sleep happen. Sleep happens to you. You don't do sleep, right? It's not like eating where you take a piece of food and put it in your mouth and chomp on it. When you go to sleep, you lay down and you let sleep happen. Meditating is the same way. When you sit, you let meditation come to you and hopefully it does. And all the preliminaries are preliminaries to eventually stopping all the preliminaries and listening. What's Kabbalah? Kabbalah is receiving. Listening for what's being offered 
the offering is always there if you're open to receiving it. Yeah, we always talk about how God is always broadcasting. Are you tuning your dial into it? Almost like a radio. Can you tune in? It never, the broadcast is always there. Can you tune in? And if you can tune in, it's always there. I love that. Wow. I really appreciate all your time and all your information. This is great. This is amazing. Thank you for joining us on The Jewish Yogi. Comment, follow, and share. Next time, we're going to be having a nosh of an episode about Shavuot. See you then. Thanks and Shalom!